We are downtown. We are historic. We are family. We are scriptural. We are First Baptist Church. What a story baptism tells. For 2,000 years, the church has been saying through baptism that the Son of God has died for the sins of the world and was buried and rose in newness of life and in calling us to walk in newness of life. It's not only a story of what Christ has done, but a story of personal faith in what Jesus has done in an individual's life. And so this morning, I am so honored to baptize and tell that story in Rebecca Huff's life. So Rebecca, would you join me? If you're a friend or family of Rebecca Huff, would you please stand in honor of her? <laughs> now, Rebecca, I'm going to ask you two very important questions, okay? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? And will you follow him every day of your life? Well, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. have the opportunity to begin worship with two baptisms this morning. Two baptisms that represent two wonderful families in the life of this church. And we're grateful because this, this is the work of the church. This is the work of God. And so our, our second baptism is Haley. Hi. Come on down, Haley. And if you are a friend or a family of, of Haley, won't you go ahead and, and stand with her? Amen. Praise God. Haley, do you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Okay, let's come here. Yes. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, and raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. We, we praise our God for these stories of redemption.
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Can you resonate with that text? Bind my wandering heart to thee. The world will not understand that kind of text unless they know the love of Jesus. Amen? This scripture that I'm about to read is a little different than most of the calls to worship that I read. I usually like to have something to really grab your attention. But this is a text we think written around the time that David is fleeing the city, that he is dealing with this crisis of Absalom. What I want you to listen for in all psalms like this is the comma, but God. That happens when, when you lay out your, your worries and your fears to God, but then you recognize he's in control. Amen? Amen? Hear the word of the Lord. This is Psalm 3. Follow along as I read. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me and around about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Amen? Let us continue to worship in this season of Easter, this season of resurrection. Christ is alive. Hymn 173, stand together.
Christ is alive indeed. Would you welcome those around you in worship this morning? Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Baptist. We're here today to worship and to be refreshed in our walk with the Lord. We want to welcome our TV audience, and we have many around the world, literally, that are following us online as well, and we welcome them uh, to join us that are here in this room. It was on a neighboring ranch. The, the new owner wanted to expand the existing lake that was close to the uh, house. And there was a ravine above the lake that he thought needed to be cleared out and also he could make his expansion. A large rock had made its residence in the center of that and he felt like it needed to be relocated. So with his bulldozer, he began to relocate that large rock. When he began pushing on that rock, he had a new discovery. An artesian well began to flush up out of the ground, out of the dry ground, and fill the ravine. He made a hasty retreat on his bulldozer just in time. You know, Jeremiah tells us that God is just like an artesian well, living water that flows forth like a fountain. And as we worship together here today, whether we are reading God's word or singing hymns of faith or we're sharing together in prayer, we have communion with him. So as we do that today, drink deeply from his unending supply of living water. Let's worship our mighty God. Pray with me. Our Father, like living water, you pour forth like a fountain. Father, forgive us when we trade that living water for broken cisterns, stagnant water, Father. Keep our eyes upon you, and especially as we join our hearts together to worship today, keep our eyes upon you and that we might draw from your grace, your mercy, your glory, your love. Father, accept our praise, accept our worship. Teach us from your word. Speak to us through prayer, Father, in our hearts through your spirit. Father, may our lives be pleasing to you. May our hearts be attentive to your voice. Father, may you receive glory through our worship today. Hear our prayer, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things we do by our worship prior to the message is we calibrate our hearts to, to be at a place where we can receive what God has for us today. And we do that in many ways. We pray. We sing. We sing. We sing. Amen. <laughs> we, when we read his word, 
As we encounter this scripture from Psalm 139, this very familiar scripture, let this be your prayer this morning as he examines all of us and as we, as we ask him to do that. Follow along as I read this. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let that be our prayer every day and this day as we worship him. Let us do that as we trust and obey for there is no other way. Hymn 447, stand together as we sing. May be seated. Good morning. Kids, it's going to turn up front.
everybody that he's not dead, is he? Yeah, it was a good morning. And today, in worship, we're going to talk about some other things, too. All right, guys, today, in worship, we are going to be learning in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going to be talking about a man named David, a man named Absalom. You guys know who David is. You've, you've heard his name, you've heard his name here in worship. But today, we're going to be talking about a man named Absalom. And what do I do with this? I'm sitting on it. There it is. What does this look like? Crumbled, crumbled trash heap. Got lots of color on it, doesn't it? Well, let's see this. What does it look like now? Kind of like a heart, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not a very clean heart or a very good-looking one, is it? It's just it's kind of ripped up and crumbly and stuff like that. Well, today, Absalom, we're going to learn about him, and he was very deceitful. He did things that tricked other people. He lied, and it wasn't a good thing. And the Bible talks about how when we do things like that, when we sin, our hearts are kind of, we're kind of like this. But, what does this one look like? A heart. If this one, yeah, this one's clean. It's white. Yeah. But the Bible tells us that when we, when we ask for forgiveness, when we repent of the things that we've done, and tell God the, the things that we've done, it's like God looks at us and looks at our hearts as, as though they're white as snow. The Bible tells us that. And so today, you guys just heard a verse that Pastor Aaron said that search, said, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my thoughts. If there's any grievous way, lead me in a way of everlasting. So, we're going to be learning about this. We want to have hearts like this, don't we? We, we want God to see us as clean. We want God to see us. And last week we learned about how Jesus died on the cross for us so that we could be with God and so that God could look at us with hearts like this. I'm so grateful for Jesus and I'm so grateful that he died on the cross for my sins, but I'm so grateful that he's not dead anymore. And we studied that today, we learned about that, and we celebrated that today in Sunday school. And we're going to celebrate that all week long and all year long until next Easter, and we're going to celebrate it some more. All right? So let's pray, and then you guys can go God, we are grateful for Jesus, and we're grateful that you forgive us when we ask for your forgiveness, that you forgive us when we repent and say the, the things that we've done. That Jesus is not dead, and we... We celebrate that, and we are so grateful and thankful for him. Thank you that you love us and that you care for us and that you did everything that you needed to to make it so we could be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. Thank you, children. I want to put these next two pieces um, that we're going to sing in, in the context of our Easter season I don't know about you, but one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, in the light of the resurrection, are the disciples on their way to Emmaus and how they have an encounter with Jesus. And before they even know, before he fully reveals himself to him, they just, their hearts are burning. And here's what I take from that. When you have a real encounter with Jesus, you cannot help but get enough of him. You want more. You want to have more of him in your life. You just say, stay with me. Lord, abide with us. Stay here with us. We want to know you fully. 
So as we prepare to hear from the word this morning, let, let that be our heart's cry. Abide with me, Lord, in life, in death, abide with me. Let's sing that truth. Hymn 63, standing together, let's worship. sing that same text in a different setting. Continue to worship. Continue to ask Jesus to stay here with us. You may be seated.
Thank you, Aaron and choir. If you have a Bible with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15 or your Bible app. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. This is the next in our series that we have called A Man After God's Own Heart. It's been a study in 2 Samuel of uh, the life and particularly the reign of King David over Israel. And we've called it A Man After God's Own Heart. I, I wonder if you've taken the time over these weeks so far to ask yourself, what exactly does that mean, being a person after God's own heart? Because today's study is, is very much a, a contrast, a study in contrast between David, a man after God's own heart, and Absalom, his son, who is, I suppose, a man after the people's own heart. It's a, it's a study in contrast, and it, it begs the question, what does my heart chase after? Is my heart a heart after God's own heart? And, and I don't know, uh, it's probably unfair of me to oversimplify it quite this much, but to me, having a heart after God's own heart, being a person after God's own heart is, is about wanting the same things that God wants. <laughs> it's about having a heart that yearns after the same things that God's heart wants for his people, for this world. It's, it's about giving up my agenda so that I can pursue God's agenda in my life. And, and so wanting the thing, same things that God wants is a tall order. And, and I suppose uh, what it looks like over time is the more time I spend in God's word, the more time I spend in God's presence, and the more time I spend loving God, God's people, the more my desires get shaped towards God's desires. The longer I do that, the more I can begin to trust the desires in my heart. Not so much at, at first, but over time, having a heart that is shaped and molded more and more towards God is what it's all about. And, and so today's study really is a, a study in contrast between David's son Absalom and David. If you have your listening guide with you, uh, what you'll notice is I've, I've organized this message uh, along two different ways. Uh, one is the usual. I always look for, the, always look for some eternal truths that, that bubble up out of the Scripture that we can take away with us. But, but in this passage, maybe more so than usual, uh, another thing happened as I began uh, working through this passage is, it not only gave me some internal truths, but maybe more importantly than that, it, it helped me ask better questions than I had been asking of myself. And I think that's an important takeaway from any time we open the Word of God is, what, what, how does this change the questions I'm asking myself? And so you're going to see that as we move through the listening guide. Uh, the portions of the passage we're going to read aloud together are printed on the top of your listening guide. Let's stand together and read together from 2 Samuel chapter 15 as printed there in your listening guide. Read with me. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests 
And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is the word of the Lord. And so as I read this story, particularly on the heels of last week's story, which was a gritty and dirty story from last week, a, a story of, of how Absalom came to the place that we find him now, having killed his brother out of revenge, having been exiled, and then having come back from the exile and living in Jerusalem, but still under house arrest, so to speak, distant from his father, no relationship at all with his father anymore, and then manipulates his way into coming out of, that house, out of that house arrest and now is free to roam within Israel. That's, that's where we pick up in today's passage. And as I look at this passage, the very first thing that jumps off the page at me, the very first better question to ask myself is, in whom or in what do I find my identity? You see, this this question of is, is, am I a person after God's own heart? It's a question that begins with my identity, where I find my identity. Absalom found his identity in his own selfishness, in what he wanted, in what maybe it's fair even to say what he felt should happen. He reached deep down inside him, and, and, and David's oldest son now, Amnon, no longer being on the scene, having been killed, Absalom would be ordinarily next in line for the kingdom. And so Absalom's identity in Absalom's mind became the prince who will be king. And the reason we know that is from the very first verse. When Scripture tells us after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, his own entourage of men. This isn't just something wealthy people of the time did. This is something kings did. This was the closest that culture understood to what you and I might refer to as presidential, carrying myself as a king so that I will become a king. You see, Absalom felt inside himself this deep, deep desire to be king, and therefore he began to act as if he is. He began to present as if he would be, and in doing that, he found an identity that had nothing to do with what God wanted for him. And isn't that the point here? If I'm going to be a person after God's own heart, then I can't find my identity. I don't have the luxury of finding my identity in my feelings or what it feels like. I don't have the, the luxury of finding my identity in what my family says I should be or what the culture says I should be. If I am going to be a person after God's own heart, I have to find my identity in God. I am the person God says I am. It doesn't have anything to do with what I feel like or what I want or what my family says or what the culture says. It doesn't have anything to do with any of those things. And, and if anyone understood that, David did. If, if you ever go back and read the rest of, we, we read a portion out of the 139th Psalm. The 139th Psalm that David wrote is a beautiful example of a man who found his identity in God and in God alone. Because who did David's family tell him he was? Well, 
As a boy, his father said, well, you're a shepherd. That's what you do. That's who you are. You go be a shepherd, David. And he was a shepherd, and he did that well. But you and I both know that's not what God had in mind for him ultimately. His family told him he was a shepherd. But if David were to have relied on his own feelings, what he felt inside, he wouldn't have been a shepherd at all. He would have been a poet. Because that's where his passion lied. Putting words together with music. He would have been a musician. He would have been a poet. That's what we see in the Psalms. And that's what drove him on his, from the point of view of his feelings. But you and I both know that God had something much bigger in mind for him than being a poet. If David had allowed his own sins to define him, he would have found his identity elsewhere. He would have decided, I'm an adulterer, or he would have decided, I'm a murderer. If he had allowed the, the problems of his past and the shame from his past to define him, that's where he would have found his identity. But in the 139th Psalm, David says it over and over again in, in many different ways, I am who God says I am. God formed me in my mother's womb. And there's nothing I can do to get away from him. And there's nothing I can do to lose him. And he will always be with me. And he will always be there defining me for me. As followers of Christ, my friends, we find our identity in God, in Christ. I am the man God says I am. What happens then? What happens if I choose an identity contrary to what God has for me? If I choose an identity that runs contrary to what God's Word has for me, if I choose an identity contrary to what my prayer time before Him has me, and if I choose an identity contrary to what God's people's counsel tells me, what happens when I choose an identity contrary to what God has? Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good will happen. In fact, every decision after that becomes an impossibly hopeless choice when my decision is to be something other than what God has for me. And that was where Absalom was. Fill in this first blank with me on your listening guide. One of the eternal truths from this lesson, when the identity I want or feel is different from the identity God wants for me, there are no easy choices. But there are right choices, the long-term impact of which I probably cannot see today. See, when I find myself forcing an identity that God never had in mind for me, all of a sudden, my world is without hope. And there are no easy choices at that point. But it's not just about identity. It's also about the path then that I choose in light of the identity God has for me. The, the better question this passage has me asking is, well, what is that path? What path am I walking? Absalom's, Absalom's path was filled with manipulation and filled with deceit. Absalom was in the best light, in the very best light we can give to him, giving him the benefit of all doubt. Absalom was ultimately a politician. In the very best light, in the very best light, we might be able to say that there were moments in Absalom's life when he 
when what he really wanted was what the people wanted. All right, let's be honest. More times than not, it was about what Absalom wanted. And what Absalom wanted in this case was to manipulate the people into thinking they wanted him. And so he became the politician that he needed to become. That's the path he took. Because he knew that that was the only way he was, he was going to get there. Isn't it, doesn't it strike you odd? Doesn't it strike you as such a stark contrast when we look at Absalom versus David that in Absalom's entire life over the several chapters that we have talking about Absalom, there is no reference to God where Absalom is concerned? There is no connection between him and God. There is never a question about what does God want. There is never a nod to God. There are no, there's no lip service giving to, given to God. There is no connection between him and God. Absalom wants what Absalom wants, and he's going to manipulate the people into getting that for him. And it's deception. Now, honestly, again, trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, when he says to his father, I made this vow to the Lord, Verse 7, please let me go and pay my vow, which I've vowed to the Lord in Hebron, for your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram. All right, Absalom, really? Did you? Did you make that vow? We don't know the answer to that. But here's what we do know. What he went to do had little to do with fulfilling a vow. His agenda, his motive was about building an army. He needed some geographical distance between Jerusalem and his father and where he was so that he could begin to amass his army. And we know that he did this through deception because it follows right after that. It tells us, verse 11, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. You see, the invitation to those 200 people was, I'm going to go and worship we're going to go and have a gathered time of worship where I can fulfill my vow. Will you come and worship with me? That's what they thought they were signing up for. They were going to worship. But Absalom was going to build an army. And he got them all there. And then he said to all of Israel, look at this. Look at the people who have amassed around me. It's only a matter of time before I become the king. And he sent the word out. To all of the places around Israel, when you hear the trumpet sound, yell out together, Absalom is king. That was the purpose. It wasn't about worship. We even see when he says, when it says that Absalom was offering sacrifices in verse 12, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahipothel, the Gilanite. While he's doing the worship, while he's in gathered worship offering sacrifices, he is recruiting an army. That's how we know this isn't a path that God gave him because it is filled with deceit and lies and manipulation. And when I find myself on a path that requires me to mislead or misrepresent, or twist the truth, or bend the truth, or lie, or deceive, I can just know, I can rest assured, this is not the path God has for me. And so this second question, what about the path I'm walking, is a question that goes to the heart. Is there deception? Fill in this next blank with me on your listening guide. I know my path is contrary to God's will, and therefore horribly flawed. 
if any part of it requires shading or bending the truth. And so to ask myself, am I a person after God's own heart? Is my heart being shaped and directed daily more and more to be after God's heart? And is that the direction I'm moving? It, it is about identity. What ident where do I find my identity? It's about my path. How does my path look? And it's about surrender. Now, what comes next is a little bit, I don't know, I'm not going to say it's controversial, but I, I, I have the benefit. I have the benefit of being a part of several small groups that look at the reverse passage all week long as we come to Sunday. And, and this next part of this passage is the one that we have the most disagreement about in, among me and my friends the, about what David does. Because what it says is David then makes the decision he then makes the decision to leave. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of his sword. Here's the question. Is, is, is this a good thing or a bad thing on David's part? Did you answer that question for yourself as you read the passage this week? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this just David running again? I think that's a legitimate question. I mean, let's be honest. If, if, if you've been with me as a father, I've been very disappointed over the last few weeks of David. His daughter is assaulted by one of her own brothers, and he does nothing. Her brother then kills the first brother, and he does nothing. And so there is this paralysis that seems to have set in with David with regard to receiving and accepting the consequences of, the, of his own sin in his life. And that paralysis has him doing nothing or worse, running away from. And so is that what this is? I would get, I totally get that if that's the conclusion you've reached. That David is, here he goes again, just running away again from his problems. There's another theory there's a military theory. Now, I'm not a military strategist, but I've heard this very thing described as a strategic retreat. David was a soldier. He was a warrior. He knew that if there's going to be a war, he didn't want it being fought here where he's got to be boxed in in this palace and defending a palace. He wanted to be out where he wins wars. He wanted to be out where he would be victorious. And that, I've heard that theory as well, and that's a legitimate theory. Maybe this was a good strategic move on his part in order to fight the battle out there rather than here in Jerusalem, to, to, limit, to limit how many people would be hurt. But you know what I read when I read this? I think it was a good thing, and I think it was David utterly and completely in all humility surrendering to God and saying, God, I'm not going to try to fix this. You show me what you want. I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble trying to fix things. I'm not going to try to fix this. God, you take this. You do what you want with this. I think this was surrender. And I think that at least begs a question for you and for me. What does surrender look like for me today? Today. And you'll ask it again tomorrow. What does surrender look like again today? I think it's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. 
What are the places or circumstances that you're struggling with today, and what does surrender look like in light of those circumstances? David, David was just going out to the place where he most often surrendered to God, the wilderness. There was never a time in David's life when he was closer to God than when he was in the wilderness. You've read that over and over again in David's story. In 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he never was closer to God than when he was in the wilderness. So David ran to the wilderness to get closer to God. I believe this was about surrender. Fill in this last blank with me on your listening guide. In God's story, the wilderness is almost always God's classroom where important lessons are learned. Any wilderness season in my life is a path towards spiritual growth. What wilderness season are you in right now? Is there a, a wilderness season around, uh, circling around your physical health, around brokenness in your family, around financial problems, around business problems, around difficult neighborhood relationships? Is there, are you in a wilderness in your life right now? I just want, to, I want you to see in this passage, I want you to hear God's word saying to you, this is where God brings you close. And it's certainly true of my life. When I look back over my life at the places I've been closest to God, it hasn't been when times are good. It's been when times are horrible. And when I'm feeling the darkness and the oppression of this world on me, and I don't have any way to turn, that's when I feel closest to God. When I'm at the end of myself, when I'm at the end of my fixes for things, when I'm at the end of my abilities, when I can no longer control what's going on, when I get there, then God says, now we can talk. That's where I learn. I think the true, same is true for you. So as this passage ends, David makes another good decision, I think, in terms of sending the ark back to Jerusalem. There is this literal parade out of the palace of all of David and all of his family and all of his servants, hundreds of people parading, literally parading out of the palace, out of the city, across the Kidron Valley, and up into the wilderness. But David says to the priests who are carrying the ark, stop, you're not coming with us. Because David recognized that he had no personal claim on the ark of God. That ark of God belonged to the people of God. That ark of God belonged in Jerusalem. And as a part of his surrender, David said, let the ark stay in Jerusalem. Let God show me what he wants from me. And I think that's a part of his surrender. But there is this beautiful image then at the very end of this chapter that is so captivating. Verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with all his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. It is an, a, a beautiful picture of David on the Mount of Olives, glancing back over the city of Jerusalem and weeping at what he's thinking and what he's feeling. And don't you know that is a beautiful reflection of what we would see in Jesus. The same place, hundreds of years later. Jesus on the Mount of Olives, looking over the city of Jerusalem, days before he would die, and weeping. 
It's a beautiful picture. But the even clearer reference here to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem is another incident that happened on the Mount of Olives just two days after that in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus weeping on the Mount of Olives and asking God a very simple question, saying to God, God, this is what I want, but give me what you want. This is where my heart is, but I want what you want more than anything. That's the picture of surrender. And for those of us who want our heart to be a heart after God's own heart, for those of us who want to follow Christ, that's the image, that's the illustration, that's the picture of what surrender looks like. God, this is what I want, but make sure you give me what you want. I want your will. I want your kingdom. I want the identity you give me. I want the path that you give me to walk. I want what you want in my life. Are we a people after God's own heart? Well, these are the questions that tell us. These are the questions that answer that for us. Will you pray with me? It is what we want, Lord, and it's easy for us to gather in this place with your word and glorious music and hearts turned to you, and it's easy for us to say, Father, yes, I want my heart to be after your heart. I, I want my identity to be in you. I am the man you say I am, and nothing else and nothing less. I want what the path that you give me, Lord. I want to surrender completely to you today. It's easy, Lord, for us to say that here today. The question, though, is what can we say today that will make a difference tomorrow? Because it's tomorrow that's the real test, isn't it, Lord? It's who we are tomorrow. It's, it's where our heart is tomorrow. That's the real test of whether a change has happened in us. Father, take our hearts. Change them in a way that makes a difference tomorrow. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we respond, don't we? It just would never be right for us to open the Word of God and pour it into our hearts and then have no response. There must be some kind of a response. Maybe it's a response to come down and, and, and talk with, with one of the ministers here and say, I don't know this surrender I don't know what this looks like. I want to understand this better. That would be an appropriate response. Maybe it's just a response in the quiet of your own seat to say, God, I haven't gotten this right, but I'm ready to. I'm ready to change some things here. Maybe it's a response in a relationship that exists in this room that you need to go to and make right. Maybe it's just some time writing or drawing or something that, that begins to drive this message home. But there should be a response, shouldn't there? from every one of us. That's what these next few minutes are about. Let's let God lead us in how we respond. Let's stand. Let's sing.
you may be seated as we continue to worship and we're prepared to take the offering this morning. Let this prayer prompt guide you, not just today, but this week. Father, we cannot accomplish your design and purpose for family in our own strength. We'll fail miserably. Our assignment in our homes is as dependent on prayer as any other assignment you give us. So please, teach us how to pray so our home life will reflect kingdom life today, tomorrow, forever. Amen. been a good day already. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. Blake Coffey, you're a gift, my brother. Thank you so much for leading us today. So thankful for the way that God has designed you, gifted you, called you, and we're happy to have you as part of this family. As we turn to our life together now, we take what we've learned today and we, how can we use this kingdom life? How can we be a part of this community, this, this, this city, this church? And here are some ways so tonight at 6 p.m. will be church conference. Friends, the, the best way to get plugged into this, this church, what's happening in the church, is come be a part of church conference. Six o'clock in the fellowship hall. Um, we would love to have you with us there. 
May 10th and 11th, we will have a, a prayer vigil. Many of you will remember we had one last year. And to a person that was a part of that, there was such a feeling of this was God-ordained. That the church would come together and pray collectively, corporately, individually. So we'll have an all-night prayer vigil, um, May 10th and 11th. If you cannot commit for the all-night uh, um, event, you can come for a portion of it. It begins at 7.30, and so there'll be a, a portion that will start here in the sanctuary that will last until 9.30, and then they'll lock the doors and secure the campus. But, but I pray that you will be a part of this wonderful um, opportunity. Um, third, on May 19th will be a Fostering Together luncheon. Um, we want to be a people that encourages uh, foster families that we support them, that we consider being a foster family. So May 19th, uh, there will be a luncheon. You can find out fbcsa.org slash fostering together to find out more information about that. Next Sunday night, 6 p.m., here in the sanctuary, the sanctuary choir will be, be presenting Savior, the, the oratorio. We have presented it before, but it is a wonderful telling of God's story from creation through Jesus' uh, redemption and, and promises. So I, I pray that you will be a part of that. Um, it's really a wonderful work, and we're including many of our pastors that you'll get to hear the song stylings of Brian Richardson. I mean, it's... it's but Danny Panter will be, be soloing with us as well as many of our soloists from, from our choir. So please come and, and just hear that story again in song. Invite your friends and family to be with us together. Um, Glenn and Ruth Cameron. Glenn, where are you guys? Back there, over there. Fifty years ago, this last February, the Lord brought the Camerons to First Baptist Church. And they have served faithfully as a part of our fellowship. They have served on staff in just about every possible conceivable uh, ministry. And so the Lord is taking them from us to, to, to be um, up in Waxahachie. So we hear great things about that. It's a good place to visit. But uh, the <laughs> Cameron's are, are going to go and, and be... But we just wanted to say, Glenn, Ruth, God bless you for your faithfulness and, and we pray for you as you go. Would you help me thank them? Well done. Well done. These flowers before me here remind us of the Saint Barbara McKinney. And so we, we remember her and her, the, the many ways that she contributed to the life of this church. They are given into the glory of God in, in her memory. So, Larry, come talk to us. All right, I have the privilege this morning to introduce these that have come. Um, I want you to meet Ariella and Travis Meadows. As you can tell, Ariel is already involved in the church. <laughs> we welcome them. They come on promise of letter from First Baptist Southern Verdict. Come into place their life and service with us here. You know, I don't care how long you've been a member of First Baptist Church, you may think that you know all of the family connections that are within the body of Christ. It'll never happen. But, here is one connection you can make right now. Alan and Cassandra Meadows, this is Travis' parents. They come also to place their life in service with us here. <laughs> also, I want you to meet uh, Amy Ombi, and I want you to meet Dalton Grider. 
and you can make a connection there very soon. These two are engaged to be married, and they come to place their life in service with us here from church here in the area. And I believe Travis, I mean, uh, Dalton is coming also uh, by baptism. Amen. Join with me and welcome these to the fellowship of First Baptist Church. Would you say amen? Amen. 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 We love you. Very much. Gary, you're here in position. Would you take them outside to the door there and you stop by and greet them as you're leaving? And uh, they'll want to get your picture and also we can get you introduced to the whole church. Amen. We welcome them. Amen. Stand together as we're dismissed. All hail the power of Jesus' name. bless you.
First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.